Hello, and welcome to Learn to Love, a show where we talk all about things you can do to build a better, stronger relationship. Our team is powered by passionate volunteers looking to bring forward the best of what they know to help you stay together. Love is hard, but it doesn't have to be. Our podcast, articles, and videos feature insights from the latest research on relationship psychology, intimacy, conflict resolution, parenting, and more. You don't need to go in blind and make the same mistakes as those around you. Check us out on our brand new website at learnlove.ca or listen on our podcast, the Learn to Love podcast. Thank you for joining us in our vision to create healthier relationships and stronger families. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm super excited to have you join me for this brand new episode on the Learn to Love podcast. We've been working really hard the past couple days and having so much fun uh, on this Learn to Love project. I'm preparing the Udemy course, doing a whole bunch of editing on the content for the course, putting in a whole bunch of stock footage too um, to help you visualize what we're talking about in the course. We are getting working on social media channels, so you can now check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Learn to Love Media. Learn to Love Media on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, we are also getting on Facebook with a Facebook page called Learn to Love. Um, and we're posting some updates about the new articles on the website there. And also we're posting a whole bunch of quotes. So if you like quotes about relationships and, and love, we have a ton of really cool quotes and we put them over pictures and videos. Um, they get shared on our Instagram and Twitter. So check that out, Learn to Love Media, if you are interested in some daily quotes and inspiration. Over the past couple episodes, we've been having some really meaningful discussions about conflict resolution. We talked about the four horsemen of argumentation uh, from John Gottman and the seven principles for making marriage work, criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. We talked about the three most, the three common ways that people deal with anger and conflict from Sue Johnson's Hold Me Tight, that's Protest Polka, Find the Bad Guy, and Freeze and Flee. We talked all about how we have to model what we want to see in our partner. We talked about mirror neurons and, and how, how that modeling works. We talked about how we need to allow space for our partners to vent, allow them to communicate. We don't need to solve their problems. We can just listen and help them think because listening is thinking and show them that we're on their team, that we're on their side. We talked about the most basic ways to help somebody calm down through holding them, rocking them, and so much more on the show. We also talked about the rights in the relationship, the right to have your experiences and feelings acknowledged as real. Remember, we all experience things differently that's okay. It's part of being human and what makes being human exciting. And we talked about so much more. I hope that all of these things that we brought up on the show can help you to build a better, healthier, and stronger relationship. That's what we are all about here at Learn to Love, helping you 
Love Smarter, Not Harder, which is the title of our Udemy course, uh, which is currently in development. In today's episode, I want to talk a little bit more about why we choose to respond to conflict in the way we do. We'll look at some neuroscience, some anthropology. Uh, We're going to talk all about habits that we bring into conflict, although you can use this uh, outside of conflict too, about habits in general, ideas coming from James Clear in Atomic Habits and Wendy Wood in Good Habits, Bad Habits. Um, If you're interested in those, they're both really, really interesting um, books. And we're going to talk a little bit more about feelings um, and how they glitch sometimes. And this will relate to limits. Um, Remember, we said that you can prevent, I suggest, 95% of limits just through, sorry, that you can prevent 95% of fights through using limits, setting aside very clear, consistently enforced, and well-advertised boundaries that teach your partner the way that they should treat you. We think that, you know, we're so easy. You should know how um, I want to be treated, but actually that's not the case. We have to be very clear in how we encourage our partners to treat us. We have to tell them very specifically, like, how do we really want to be treated? What works for us? What doesn't work? A lot of us don't know the way we want to be treated. We think we do and we walk around thinking that we do, but we really don't, which is why it is so important to have this discussion about limits, to really think about what our own limits are before we can expect our partners to keep them. If you're interested in continuing the discussion on limits, seeing infographics and other resources, check out our website. We have all of that on the blog. All right, so let's get started with our discussion today on habits. So you may have been listening to the show and think, well, you know, I really do want to try model what I want to see in my partner. I really do want to respect my partner's limits and make my own. I really do want to first rescue. Remember that we talked about that so deeply at the beginning with also the concept of the consciousness car um, with the driver and the passenger. You want to first rescue, get the car back on the road, but I just can't stop lashing out at my partner. I just can't stop acting in the way that I have always been dealing with the situation. What am I supposed to do? Well, if you think about it like this, you are not alone. So many of us are in the same boat. We are trying so hard to do things that we know are the right thing to do, but we just can't do it. For example, like with weight, like we really want to lose weight and we really want to eat healthy and we know that the right thing to do is go to the gym and we know that the right thing to do is to not, you know, eat unhealthy foods at late hours in the nighttime or we really want to sleep better and we know, you know, logically that we should be in bed, but we just can't get to bed on time 
we just can't refrain from snacking. We just can't keep going to the gym. No matter how much we try, the weight stays on. And if we manage to lose that weight, it just comes back afterwards. Why? Why is this? Well, this I'm going to propose to you is largely because of the habits that we build up and the same struggle that you might be facing trying to change your habits and dealing with anger, changing the way you just default slash out at your partner or use contempt with them or a whole bunch of those other harmful things. Maybe it is because of your habits, but the good news is that you can change your habits. You can change your habits if you are just persistent, if you keep trying to notice every time you do that thing that you want to change, and then you go about and make that change. Starting small, doing things repeatedly every day, and then slowly, slowly, slowly building up until they stick. So let's begin. We threw around the words habits for a little bit so far in this episode, but what really are habits? What do they mean? Well, I'm going to propose the definition that was inspired to me by Wendy Wood in Good Habits, Bad Habits, also by Daniel Goleman in Social Intelligence, that habits are things that we do without thinking a way to react to a situation. It's a reaction to a situation that we do without thinking. So for example, when you go to the washroom in the morning after you wake up and you wet your toothbrush under the sink, do you think to turn off the tap and to put the toothbrush in your mouth and to move to all those different teeth? Do you think about that? Or does it just happen instinctively to you? Can you think about something else while you're doing it? It's the same thing when you are driving a car, for example. When you are changing lanes, do you think, do you consciously think to put on the turn signal? Or does it just happen automatically? When you approach a red light, do you think, do you think to put your foot on the brake or do you just do it without thinking? It's the same thing like if you're in the shower, do you think about washing your right arm and then your left arm and then your legs and your chest or do you just do it all without thinking? The biggest culprit of this, which (laughs) causes a lot of us um, some trouble, I I would suggest, also is locking the front door. I'm sure that there is some time in your life when you have, or either you have, or you know somebody who has walked out of the front door and then wondered later if they locked it. I know that's happened to me many, many times before. And I think about, oh my goodness, did I lock the front door on the way out? Because you don't remember doing it. You don't remember if you did it or like you have no conscious recollection of you putting the key into the door. Well, if you also can't remember if you lock the door sometimes, at least with me, the door is virtually always locked. It is like instinctual for me to put the key in the door and to lock it on the way out. Now for children, if we have young children, we have to remind them 
like, you know, as they grow up and we give them a house key, that they need to lock the door. They need to consciously think to lock the door on their way out the first couple times until they get it, that they just have to lock it on their way out. And the same thing is with driving. So when we're first learning to drive, I'm not sure if you can remember when you were first learning to drive. I sure remember though when I was learning, I had to consciously remember, okay, red light, foot on the brake, okay, turning, okay, signal, look over the shoulder, um, check the mirrors. You know, there's like an order that they teach us to do before changing lanes. Then you remember, you know, turn off the signal. Do you think, oh, I have to turn off the signal now, or do you just do it without thinking? All of this, guys, are is things, I want you to see the trend here, is things that we have just done many, 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 many times before, like with brushing your teeth or stopping at a red light, like thousands and thousands and thousands of times before in your life. And eventually you don't have to think about them anymore. They just stick. They just stick. Some other examples of this habit are ways that you greet people. Hi, how are you? Do you think, oh, I have to say hi? Or do you just say hi? When your partner comes through the door, do you just give them a hug? Or do you have to think, oh, I want to give them a hug now? Do you smile? Or do you think, oh, I need to smile now? And also with language, when you want to make coffee and you want to ask your partner to get you a teacup from the counter, do you have to think hard, what is the word for teacup to ask? Or mug, sorry, mug. What is the word for coffee mug? Do you have to look at the mug and think hard? What is the word for that? As like some people who learn languages, remember like if you're trying to learn a foreign language, you're going to have to think hard what that word is. The first time you try to recall it, it may not come to you for quite a while. But after recalling it so many times, again and again and again and again, you're not going to have to think about that teacup. You're just going to know what it is. Like, you're just going to know that's a teacup. You're going to say, um, or, or a mug. Like, honey, um, do we have any clean mugs? Or like, honey, could you pass me a mug? Or like, um, you just take out two mugs and you just know right away that that's a mug. You don't have to think about the word. Habits are things that we do without thinking, without thinking, okay? And they are things that we have repeated a whole, 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 whole bunch of times. Now, why do we do these things without thinking? And all those examples are habits that breaking at a red light, accelerating at a green light, putting the turn signal and stopping it when making a turn. Um, for children, we try to teach them look right and left before crossing the road. Also, lock the door, lock the front door. Why are these habits? It's because it takes less energy for the brain to just repeat something that it's already done before and to make a neural pathway to do that action, do those procedures of steps together with one signal instead of numerous. So by this I mean turning, for example. When you first turn in a car, first you you check your mirrors, you do the soldier check, you signal, you check your shoulder again maybe, you turn the wheel, you have to think, turn, then you check your mirrors again, then you turn off the signal, and then you get, you know, you turn, 
your wheel back and everything too and as part of that process. The first time you do it, it's like 15 steps that you have to do and you have to think consciously, check, signal, check, mirror, turn, okay, straighten the wheel, you know, check again, turn off the signal. It's like a whole bunch of steps. But eventually, it just becomes one step, turn, and you know all those things to do in that one step, hopefully. And eventually, you can do it with so little effort that you don't even have to think about the very act of turning anymore. You can think about the music you're listening to, or your thoughts, or an assignment, project at work, or anything you want. And that's the beauty of habits. It is allowing you to do something all kind of like bulking up a whole bunch of different steps and thought processes into virtually none happens instinctively so that your mind is free to think about higher level conscious tasks, okay? Freeing your mind from thinking about the car, thinking about turning so that you can instead think about something else while you're driving, which is freeing, freeing your mind, to focus on other things. When things become habits, when we do things long enough, our brain says, okay, I'm just going to make this like an instinctual reaction that you're not going to have to think about to do. You can do it without thinking. So you can think about other things. Now, there are pros and cons to this. The pro is that if it is a good action that we do want to repeat a whole bunch of times, well, that's fantastic because now we can do it without thinking. So we save so much resources cognitive resources that we can now allocate to think about something else. The con is, if it's a bad habit, it's going to be kind of challenging to change, at least in the beginning, because it's so ingrained. For example, like if you have a habit of snacking whenever you come to your kitchen, opening the counter and grabbing an unhealthy snack, that's going to be a hard habit to shake off because you're going to do it without thinking. It's just going to be the instinct that you resort to when you walk into the kitchen. You may not even notice that you're doing it until midway through the snack. Now, I want to talk about habits more now from a neuroscience perspective, neuroplasticity, and then we're going to go into a bit of anthropology, which is quite interesting, and we're going to apply this all to our relationships and anger management style. So, there's a concept in neuroscience, neuroplasticity, which, which means that the brain changes kind of thing over time, that neurons that fire together, wire together. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Now, what that means is if the same combination of neurons go off a lot, eventually they're going to start going off together. They're going to have more paths that connect each other. So that that action, let's say like, for example, that checking your mirrors when you turn or putting the signal on when you decide you want to turn, is going to group very closely to that other action. So like the signal and turning or locking the door and leaving your house. So like the, the, the neural pathway the combination of neurons firing to create that idea of locking the door are going to go alongside the combination of neurons in our brain firing those brain cells to lock it. And they're going to go together, and then we're going to do it without thinking. Now, if they go together long enough, the connections between them are going to get much stronger. They're going to grow a lot of connections between the neurons, and they're going to 
almost in a sense become fused to each other. Like they're just going to start going off together all the time. For example, like the smell of coffee and the craving of coffee or like leaving the house, locking the door. They just happen together, wanting to turn, putting on your turn signal, seeing a red light, putting your foot on the brake. Okay, they happen together. And it's the same thing with like our partner. So like we get angry at our partner, our default may be to lash at them, to get angry at them or to forget about that whole first rescue thing. They go together. Now, that's, that's the neuroscience perspective. Those neurons are actually growing new connections to each other. Neurons that, wire, that fire together, wire together. Now, another thing that this relates to is anthropology. So, some of this neurons wiring together, firing together, happens way faster than it would for other events. I'll give you an example. So let's say that you hear a baby cry. What do you do? You, if you're like me and most people, you'll feel tense in your body and you will try to help the baby. You will look for the baby, like it'll grab your attention. Why? Because the survival of infants is so important to the survival of species. So some anthropologists and geneticists think that there are some hardwired neurons that, that fire together uh, in our brain. And these neurons, these neural pathways, for example, of reacting with, oh my goodness, I need to do something to help, and a crying baby, or like noticing the, the sound of a crying baby, wire together way faster. If you just hear the crying baby once, and, you, and you'll tense, you'll always tense when you hear that crying baby, it, it's just kind of a natural thing that we have um, that's almost instilled in us from birth to react this way. And it's there to continue the survival of the species. Another example is language. Language. So humans pick up language very, very fast. It's actually almost impossible for a baby not to learn language, they will soak it up from hearing it around them and speak within the first few years of their life. It is almost impossible not to teach a baby language. The language neural combination in the brain is like so genetically hard-coded, people think, and anthrop anthropologists and geneticists think, that learning language becomes super easy. So it's this idea that we are able to learn things, to associate things together that are really, really important to our species. A, an opposite of this, a contrary to this, would be teaching an ape or monkey language. It's you, they, There are some examples of teaching monkeys basic sign language, but it's very, very, very hard to teach it to them. It takes like many, many, many years, whole lifetimes of learning. And it will always be very basic. So some people think then that monkeys are not meant to use complex language the way humans do. Or maybe they do in their own tones, but not in the way that humans do. Like, it's very hard for a monkey to learn sign language, even though they have the actual dexterity, the ability in their fingers to do many of the signs that humans use, and like American Sign Language, for example, just because the neurons that we need to fire together to do that are distant from each other or they're not wanting. I mean, they're not like, I can't say wanting, but they're not 
like encouraging that connection. They're, they're not destined to connect with each other. Where for humans, language, walking, often are almost like destined to occur together. Another example of this is a very, very interesting observation in some public health authorities that children are way more receptive, and adults too, you may be this, okay? This may apply to you, are way more receptive to be scared of snakes than cars. It is so easy for a child to be scared of snakes and for an adult too as well. I know a lot of adults who are deathly scared of snakes. If they see a snake and they see somebody be scared of the snake on TV or anything once, that can hardwire in their brain for the rest of their life. They can be deathly scared of snakes. Now, that so so why snakes? Because some anthropologists suggest that snakes were very, very deadly to humans for a long time in, in ancient civilizations. They killed, and they still kill today in many, many places. Um, like many countries, there are still significant deaths from snakes. Now, there isn't significant deaths from snakes in a lot of developed countries, like in North America, for example, and climates that don't really support so many poisonous, dangerous snakes, like in Canada and the United States. So the problem is that you have all these children who are deathly scared of snakes, even though there are basically no snakes of the poisonous variety around them in their area, in their city, even in their country. The problem, though, is that it's much harder to instill a fear of cars, of moving vehicles. It's very hard, as, as you may have noticed if you have a young child, to get that child scared of cars. Like you try to tell it, stay away from cars, stay away from cars, and then a ball rolls on the road and they run after it. And what would happen? Well, a car weighs like 4,000 pounds. It can knock them out. The car holds significantly more danger to the child than the snake, but they're going to be more scared of snakes than cars because they may be hardwired to be scared of snakes, okay? But cars are so much newer in, in the course of genetic changes, generations, and humans, so there hasn't been enough time to instill that fear of cars uh, to create an, a sort of push for fear of cars to be embedded uh, in humans in modern society, Whereas snakes have been so problematic for so long that that, that is much more easily instilled as a fear. Now, why did we have this conversation? It's to help you get more familiar with the idea of neurons that wire together, fire together. Neurons that fire together, wire together. And to understand that there's some things, it's really interesting, that are more likely to wire together than others. So for humans, language, walking, for example. Okay, like it takes, I think, like coordination of maybe 200 muscles to walk. But you don't think, you know, raise this muscle, lower this muscle, tense this, release this. It just happens. It becomes a habit. You can walk without thinking about walking. You can't do this as a baby, as an infant. When infants first try to walk, they pay their full, full attention on walking, on moving their foot. They think, tense these, well, not maybe specifically tense these muscles, but they have to learn how to pick up their foot. It's a very, very, very 
complicated process to learn how to pick up your foot into balance, but children learn it because they're it's very their brain is almost preconditioned in a sense for those neurons to fire together. And once they fire together for long enough, that connection becomes so strong, they wire together so strong that you no longer have to consciously think about walking. Now, isn't that amazing? Imagine that every time you had to walk somewhere, you had to put all of your attention on walking, on picking up your legs and lowering them. Now, in the case of stroke, some people lose this ability. Have you heard of stories of people who have a stroke and need to relearn how to walk? It's because those wired connections between the neurons associated with the walking process have been damaged. That connection has been damaged. They need to relearn to walk. It takes all their focus and many, many, many months of rehabilitation to have those neurons fire and wire together again. How convenient is it for us that we can walk while noticing our surroundings, while like not looking directly down at the ground, while talking on the phone, you know, to some people's detriment because they walk and they talk on their phone into like a wall or something or into a swimming pool or into a car, God forbid. But there's just the concept I want you to understand, okay? Neurons that fire together, wire together, and vice versa. Now, how does walking become a habit again in rehabilitation? We've hinted at this so far in all the other examples of how habits are learned, but through continuous, continuous, continuous practice. I once volunteered in a hospital that did some strengthening and and walking exercises with people who were having issues uh, with walking. And the way that they they got it to work again, and the way that also they do this with stroke patients and other people who have issues with their nerves, is through just repeating that action over and 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 over again, 10,000 times for some of these activities, okay? How does somebody who had stroke learn to walk again? They practice the walking mechanism virtually every day for months or years. And after doing it a thousand times, they can begin to do it habitually. There's a lot more on how our neurons wire together and why we sleep. Um, It's a really, really, really interesting book on sleep and how it affects the brain by Matthew Walker, if you're interested in that. Um, Definitely check it out if you want to explore this topic a bit more. There's a book called The Red Queen, uh, which also discusses this. Um, also Daniel Goleman's social intelligence, um, talks about this too. So let's continue the conversation on how this relates to anger. So as we've explored so far, when you repeat something long enough, it becomes a habit and habits are extremely useful because they allow us to focus our attention away from something. Okay so that we can think while walking. You know, we don't have to think about walking. It frees our mind to do other things. Now, habits can be harmful, though, if they are something that aren't good for us. So like snacking when the food is available. Or another example is like a lisp. You know, lisps, when you say things, but you don't pronounce a letter the right way, that's because the muscles in the tongue and around the jaw have habitually, over time, learned, wired, the neurons that control those muscles have wired together in the brain in such a way that when you want to make that sound, 
the tongue, the muscles, and the jaw, and everything orient to that pre-wired condition, okay? Now, how do you change this? You see a speech-language pathologist, and they teach you how to make the proper sound, and then you repeat it like thousands of times, and eventually it will rewire in the new learned way. Repetition. This is what James Clear talks about in Atomic Habits. And Wendy Wood, also in Good Habits, Bad Habits. How do you start a habit? How do you do something that will end up becoming a habit? You repeat it over and 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 over again. Eventually, those neurons will wire together so much in your brain. They'll fire together so often. They'll want to wire together. Because of all that firing, eventually, they'll be wired enough so that the whole process can get activated at once without you having to manually think about activating each neuron in that chain of events. It's just going to go boom, boom, boom and get activated all together, which is exactly what you want, for example, to make a sound. Boom, boom, boom. You want to activate all the muscles involved in making that sound. Like when you're learning to pronounce something, it takes a long time to get the pronunciation until through practice you can make that sound like in your, when you're speaking your native language without thinking about it. Walking, locking the door, driving, brushing your teeth, washing your body when you shower, everything. These are all habits. Now, these same habits influence our anger management technique. So maybe you were a child when you, I mean, of course you were a child, maybe when you were a child, your parents used to yell at each other when they got mad at each other because that that was their way of dealing with anger. And you kind of picked it up from watching them and you started yelling at your friends, your siblings, and everyone else around you when you were angry at them. And let's say you started screaming when you were two. I would argue that maybe screaming is like the default way because two-year-olds do it. And then, you know, you have to learn like since three, four, how to do other things to speak to people. Like in elementary school, they encourage you to use I statements. Like, I don't like it when you, instead of screaming or hitting. Okay. But um, over time, you know, if you scream at somebody long enough, that's going to become your default to just scream at them. And if you um, hit somebody for long enough, like if you're really mad and you just hit when you're mad, your brain is going to wire together hitting with getting angry, okay? When you get angry, you're going to hit. Now, that's not what you want because that's not socially accepted and parents have a really hard time Um, I'm sure if you're a parent, you can relate to this at the beginning, encouraging their two and three-year-olds not to scream and hit. It's a a problem, like, for for young children who hit, who scream, who push, who punch when they get mad. I'd actually argue, um, although I don't think this is a good thing, I would just say that maybe it is something that needs to be addressed and thought about, that hitting and screaming are the default default wiring mechanism that our brain goes to when we are angry. And the reason I say this, I'm not justifying it, I I think it's wrong, but I'm just saying that it's so important to consider this. The reason so is because who screams and punches when they're mad? Two-year-olds, guys, two-year-olds. It starts in infancy. And what do we associate with immature, unrational, unreasonable ways of dealing with conflict in adulthood? 
is hitting and screaming. That is unacceptable. If you're a two-year-old, okay, you're like weak, you know, you can't hit with more force than like, like a few grams. So, you know, we kind of just accept it. We're like, they're only two, you know, we're going to help them learn. But if an adult does it, it's jail. You can go to jail. It's like a major criminal offense. It is unacceptable in society. So parents have the job of training the kid from two to later in life so that they will not do this as an adult. Like, it's okay when you're two, it's okay when you're four. Well, not really. Like, at four, it starts to become a problem. At six, it's like a big problem if you're still doing it at six. By eight, you can get into big problems with the principal. By 12, 14, by high school, you can go to, like, juvenile detention if you do it, okay? And as an adult, you can go to jail. So the goal is to stop it early. The problem is a lot of us continue it you know, maybe not outwardly with our friends, but inwardly with our partners and sometimes with ourselves because it it may just come the most, like, it, it may be the default. It may come the most naturally. But that's not, that's not good. We have to remember that we can overcome the default through continuous repetition to find a better way. And the reason I'm saying this all is because you may have been listening to the past five episodes, I think we had five, yeah, on conflict resolution, and thought, oh my god, all of this sounds wonderful, lovely, okay? And then you got into an argument with your partner, and it was no different. I mean, I hope it was different. If it was different for you, and you focused on the first rescue, staying calm, remember we talked about how you need to take care of yourself to take care of others, because when you're calm, only when you're calm, you'll have actually the emotional capacity to use your frontal lobe your neocortex, the thinking part of your brain, without that amygdala, the emotional center that's closer to your spinal cord, intercepting all those signals and actually limiting half your brain from even responding to the situation, which is a big problem on its own. Um, But it's there for survival. Again, we talked about this. Like if an animal's attacking you, you don't want to have, you don't want to think about what you should do. The amygdala is just going to cut off half your brain, give you the run and fight signal or whatever, and boom you get into action. It may save your life. It may be that the people who had half their brain cut off, essentially when this this emotional hijacking occurred, were the most likely to survive, and then it got passed down to people who are alive today. Okay? So you may be thinking about this. It may work for you. That's fantastic if it works for you. But if you find, I mean, it will work for you when you implement it. I I can't guarantee, but I, 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 I think that it it, it will. Like, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't. But what I'm saying is you may have trouble putting it into your relationship because your habits, guys, your instinct is to yell, is to maybe you've, you've channeled habits instead of hitting. You know, I really hope you got rid of hitting because, you know, hopefully we want to extinguish that by two, three, four. Um, maybe instead you go away, or you ignore them, or you use things like you, you're such a, and you label them. Remember, we said when you label somebody, guys, when you label them, you prevent them from venting, you, they, and they need to vent. They need to get out what they've been holding in, and they've often been holding it for a long time. That's why check-ins work. When you ask yourself, and you ask them, how am I treating you with regards to your limits today? It works because you allow the opportunity to vent, to communicate. Also, it's facilitating connection. Remember, we said a lot of fights happen because of a lack of connection. And there's so much desper- like desperosity, desperateness to have a connection with our partner that the partner goes to the easiest way to get connection, which is through anger. If you can push somebody's soft spots, their buttons, 
remember soft spots get us from zero to 100 really quickly and you can make them very angry, you have a deep emotional reaction, which is what you need. You need emotion. Okay, and we're not, we're not calling people psychopaths here or something that, that want to make people um, very angry for their own personal gain, okay? Um, we're not talking about sadism or anything like that. We're just saying that there's a need for some sort of emotional exchange. So in the absence of all emotional exchange between partners, partners may resort to extreme measures to get it, okay, through this, through evoking anger. We talked about all this, okay? Now, whatever happens, whatever, however the situation got to the anger you're in now, if you're struggling to implement the things that we talked about so far, all the, you know, the first rescue, the take a deep breath, the use I instead of you statements, avoid labeling, um, use limits, okay? Like all this kind of stuff. Just remember the habits, habits. If you stick to the same habits that you always had when you were a child, you would likely be in jail, okay? If a child maybe has a habit to hit and push and to scream, okay? It's not okay. We learn to override our habits. It's the same thing when driving, when learning to drive. We build new habits, okay? You can change habits, though. That's the thing. You can change them just like people who have a stroke learn to walk again, just like people who have um, like a lisp and they work at, at some sort of speech conditioning to change the way they speak. You can do it through repetition, Repetition. That's the really big thing. Repetition. Remember, you're doing the instinctual anger response that comes to you because maybe it worked for you in the past. I mean, I don't, I don't think it worked as well as any of these strategies will work, but at least if it worked for you a little bit, your brain just stuck it so that you don't have to think about it, okay? But you need to work on not doing it, okay? Noticing when you do it and using repetition to get the new thing going. Remember, we talked about this so far on the show. The hardest thing is often starting. But once you start, you get the ball rolling. Just keep going with the momentum, okay? Eventually, you will change incredibly. If you can get 1% better every day, how much better do you think you are by the end of the year? Think about it. Just pause right now and think about it. If you get 1% better every single day, how many percent better are you at the end of the year? If you just paused, welcome back. Some of you, take a guess. Some of you are going to say 365% better. No, it's more. Some of you are going to say 3,650% better. No. Well, let's say it's like 100 Day one, you add 1%. Day two, you add another. But compound interest, okay? So you're adding 1% of 101. Then you're adding 1% of 102. Then you're adding 1% to 103. Just like your investments get, you know how you can like double your investment if you have, I think, 7% compound interest over like seven or eight years. Um, actually, I think it's a little less. You can also double your, your how good you are, okay? If you get 1% better every day, you're going to be 37, nearly 37,000% better by the end of the year. That's 37 times better 
by the end of the year. That's why I say the hardest thing is often starting, but if you can just get 1% better every single day, you're going to be 37 times better by the end of the year. That is amazing, amazing. You just need to keep on going and that new thing that you're doing will become habit. It will eventually become your new instinctual response, okay? Now, how do we go about this? So, the first thing you're going to do is make a conscious effort to try to act with regards to conflict in the way that we talked about. And you can actually do habits, you can build habits, not just by training with them in real life, you can also do them through visualization. As many athletes do this before a race, they visualize how they're going to do the race. Many soldiers who go into battle visualize the battle beforehand. And firefighters too, before going into a burning house, they often visualize their training, okay? Same thing with violin and piano players. They visualize while they dream even, the move that they want to do, the synchrony of fingers that they want to use on the piano or violin to make the sound that they want. Just like notes on a piano, guys. The first time you make a D note, you have to think about where to place your fingers. Eventually, you do it without thinking. It's a habit through repetition. You can do the repetition, though, partially in your dreams, in your thoughts, in your dreams. This is an amazing, amazing discovery. If you visualize the way you want the situation to go, and you visualize the way you want to respond to it, that is going to count credits towards your repetition. Because when you dream in some stages of sleep, guys, you are firing the same combination of neurons that you would fire during the day if you were actually experiencing that. And by them firing together so many times, they are wiring together in your sleep, in your thoughts. This is part of that conscious effort to do things again and again and again and again. You have to keep doing them, okay? But as you keep doing them, eventually they stick. They become habits. They become like our second nature, instinctual reaction, response that we do to challenging events, okay? So I want you to do this exercise, okay? I want you to close your eyes. I want you to imagine conflict with your partner. You may feel tense in your body as you imagine it. That's okay, Okay, unless there's a deeper issue involved like post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorder. In this case, um, you should ask a doctor's opinion for doing visualization activities like this. Um, okay, we don't, we're, not, we're not professional advice, but just giving a warning. But otherwise, just um, visualize and imagine how you would respond to the situation. Now, guys, you want to know another thing. You don't just have to visualize. You can actually practice with your partner. A really big theme throughout the show is that everyone always waits for tragedy to strike before they work together. People try work together the first time when they have a child and then realize that they never really worked together before and they just don't know what to do now that they have a child. But that first child doesn't have to be the first time that you try work together with each other. It doesn't. Guys, go to salsa class. That's teamwork. Try build a Lego structure together. Try build a house out of cards together. Try paint something together. There's a million things you can do, especially with the internet, guys, like YouTube, Pinterest. All these have so many ideas on, you know, what you can do together to 
you know, like it's just a million ideas. You can even take like a karate class together. By the way, karate too. All of these things, guys, all sports, everything, almost everything is repetition to build habits like karate. The first time you try a punch in karate, you have to think, 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 how am I going to do it? Eventually it comes naturally. It's through instincts. Instincts form habits. Okay? And the way you deal with anger with your partner will be habitual Two, if you just keep repeating through practicing it, I don't mean you should intentionally stage fights with your partner, okay, to get that practice thousands of times, okay? No, no, no. But you can't imagine it and you can't ask your partner if you can practice it by saying something like, honey, can you come to me and say, I'm so angry with you? And then, or like, I'm so hurt, I'm so sad. Um, I hate it when you na na na, or like you're such a, you know, you can tell them the situation that you want to practice and then respond the way that you would, that you would want to respond if the situation actually occurred. Guys, firefighters, athletes, everyone trains in situations when things are calm before they go into battle. Firefighters practice putting out fires when things are calm before they put them out when times are stressed. People often compare conflict resolution like fights to fire, okay? But you don't have to be like that fireman who walks into a fire the first time in their life when people are dying and the whole building is burning down, okay? We're going to talk about interfamily systems therapy a little bit later, which is, there's, there's this role called firefighters in it. It's about the way our mind works. Well, theory about the way our mind works. It's actually really interesting. Um, but just it reminds me of firefighters. If you're interested, you can start learning about it. But just that's the big thing here, guys, is you don't want to be like that firefighter who waits until the whole house is burning down. Okay? No, no, practice on a fire in a civil place too. That's not gonna threaten anyone's life or something, you know? The same thing with running. Like don't start running the first time you want to do a race. Practice in, in civil conditions before all the pressure builds up. Okay? Same thing with fighting with your partner, guys. Don't fight. Don't practice the way you want to fight with them only when a fight occurs. No, 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 no. Practice in a more civil way first. Just like I want you to practice teamwork with your partner too before you have a child, before something major happens, before you really need to work together, okay? Practice and then it will come easy when the time is due. Okay, remember, repeat, repeat, repeat respond the way you would want to respond. At the beginning, it's going to be hard, but just keep doing it and it's going to eventually stick, okay? Eventually, it's going to become your habitual second nature and it's going to serve you so well, not just in actual conflict with your partner, but in any, any time throughout your life when you have stress, okay? Or you have conflict with a coworker, with a peer, and all this. So in, in the first couple episodes of this series, we talked about how to pre actually prevent most conflict in the first place, through venting limits, all of that, but to do when conflict arises through modeling, all these different tools that we gave you, okay? Like don't defend, deny. We talked about not withdraw, with stonewalling, holding things in, the cup analogy. We gave you a ton of really great stuff. If you need to go back and listen to it, I mean, it took years to develop this content. So um, by all means, if you need a second listen, um, go ahead, go ahead. But now in this episode, we're teaching you how to actually apply that, like by practicing it so that it comes up as your instinctual response when real conflict strikes, okay? Practice, 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 do it again and again so that it can become a habit to respond in the right, the, the most effective way that we're teaching instead of the most, you know, the default way 
which is causing a lot of problems for you. Now, some other things is that we may have, we talked about feelings uh, at the beginning. We're going to make a whole episode about how feelings don't have IQ, um, but we often resort to habits with our feelings, okay? So like, for example, we may have a habit of getting mad at our partner every time we feel sad, lonely, or anxious. We may have a habit of ignoring our partner whenever we feel anxious. We may have a habit of blaming our partner wherever we feel like we're unsafe or not in control of something. Now, all of these are also habits that we may have learned as babies or as very young children that affected the way that we responded to our parents. Maybe we blamed our parents for things when we were younger. I don't know. Maybe we always felt that somebody should be fully responsible for the way we feel and we blame them. Um, this... So I want, I want you to think about habits that affect your, your feelings too, okay? Your feelings about your partner. And remember, we're going to make a whole episode on this, that feelings don't have IQ. People's feelings often get mixed up. You think that you feel mad at your partner, but you're actually hungry or thirsty. You think that you're hungry, but you're thirsty, okay? You think that you're thirsty, but you're hungry. You think that you're angry, but you're tired. You think that you're anxious, but you are honestly just bored, okay? Feelings glitch. They often glitch. It's hard for us sometimes to know the source of feelings. And often we try to ignore and repress a number of feelings so much that by the time they actually get to us, we have no idea what they even refer to. And they may have gone exaggerated a whole lot in that numbing process. We're going to have a whole future episode and series dedicated to numbing. I think it's a major issue in society today that is influencing relationships. So we will talk all about that. Um, and what you can do to make it better. We'll talk about different techniques um, from different books and some neuroscience, again, and anthropology um, on how to, to deal with that. So just to review now everything that we talked about in the show, we, the, the purpose of this, this episode on the show was to help you understand how you can make all these things that we threw at you in the last couple of episodes come to you when conflict actually arises. Now, the way to do that is to make them habits. Neurons that fire together, wire together, okay? And over so many years of doing other techniques that may have not been working for you, those neurons have wired together. But the good thing, guys, the good news is that they can change. You can change wiring through repeated practice. Now, Okay, repetition, 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 repetition. Eventually, it will stick and become a habit. Why do we have habits? Because they take less effort to do, to instill. Imagine you have to think about lifting your leg every time you wanted to walk. Okay, that would suck. That would, that would like totally limit your life, okay? Now, there are some habits that we are wired, um, almost predisposed to learn. For example, like walking, language, okay, speaking, communication. Um, now, another thing is hitting and screaming when we want to, when we are angry, okay? Now, eventually, that, that may be channeled to something else, like threatening or speaking with a bad tone of voice or, or, you know, doing a whole bunch of other harmful things. But we can change those habits. Just like, I hope that really, really inspired you. We gave you so many examples of people who changed habits with practice, okay? People who um, had a stroke, Okay, and they learn to walk again to form that habit of walking together again by, by getting those neurons to rewire together. People who have a lisp and go to some speech language pathology, they form a habit of getting those muscles to fire the way that they want them to to make the sound that they, they want. Other examples are learning a language. When you learn a language, you make a habit of recalling certain sounds for certain items. For example, if you're learning French, okay, bonjour, hello. 
when I recall bonjour, I don't think about the word. It's habitual. I've formed a habit of recalling the sounds bonjour to express hello. Okay? Just like you can learn a language at any point in your life. And how do you learn a language, guys? Practice, practice, practice. Practice, practice, practice. Repetition, 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 repetition. If you ask anybody who learns a language, okay? If they just learn a word the first time and they say that's it, which is like what you would have done if you just listened to these lessons and never looked at them again, it's not going to stick. Often you can't recall a word after the first time that you just hear it. But if you keep repeating over and over and over again and practicing, visualizing, guys, often when people learn languages, they visualize what they would do in the situation, just like athletes, firefighters, and soldiers visualize, and football players, what they want to do when they go to action. Hey, sorry, I used, I used football players because I just read um, a section on a coach from um, a team in Southern California and how they use visualization to help that team excel. You can apply this visualization technique to the way that you manage anger, the way you deal with anger, conflict resolution, and these situations. Now, often habits continue in life, okay, and they don't take a lot of effort because, like, they're just instinctual, and then everything changes. Like, we have a baby now. A baby was introduced, and the baby's crying and screaming a whole lot, and now we don't have time anymore, you know, to be together as much as we did, or we don't know what to do, or all of our previous habits aren't working, and we start to get stressed because the baby's so unpredictable and totally changes the habits and the style of everything that we were doing before the baby, Okay, some people describe having their first baby like a grenade going off. It can do wonders for your marriage if you use it as an opportunity to be a team for both partners to be involved and to grow together, to come to understand each other better and to build that teamwork muscle. It can also tear a marriage apart if both couples aren't involved, if they don't build new habits, okay, routines, and stay engaged with each other. We're going to talk more about this in the next episode. Uh, We'll also talk about habits related to numbing, and we'll explore this whole feelings, glitching sometimes, uh, the feelings related to habits a little bit more. I hope that you found this episode interesting, meaningful, and insightful. We went through a lot of neuroscience and some psychology, some anthropology, too, um, in this work. I hope that you enjoyed it and that you'll be able to apply it to your relationship. If you have any feedback on this episode, um, please let us know. Send me an email. I read all the emails that come to us at contact at learnlove.ca. And if you want to see this in visual form, check out our website, learnlove.ca. And soon, as, as we polish them up a little bit more, also check out our social channels, Learn to Love media on Instagram and Twitter. Check out our Facebook page, Learn to Love. And we are working on Pinterest too. Learn to Love on Pinterest. I'm so grateful that you stayed to the end and that you're working so hard to build a healthier and stronger relationship and family. That is wonderful news. Wonderful, wonderful news. Remember, most divorce can be prevented through learning the tools and skills required to succeed in marriage and relationships, okay? Unfortunately, these tools aren't taught enough in society. So I'm so happy that you're joining us on this journey to learn together so that we can have these tools to stay together. Thank you so, so much for listening. And I can't wait to welcome you back in the next episode. Love is hard. It can be so, so hard sometimes but it doesn't have to be. Thank you for joining me.